Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is science on your radio. Uh, as it is every week, my name is Chris. And this week, well, I've been, I've been thinking a lot lately about uh, how things rotate. And I'm interested at the moment in centrifugal force. So I'm going to be talking about centrifugal force and centripetal force. And I'm going to try and convince you that despite what you may have heard, centrifugal force, I think it is a real thing. So uh, we'll be talking about what that is and why it may or may not be, be real in a, in a few minutes. Stu, what have you got for us? Well, I'm going to be talking about drugs. I'm going to be talking about uh, genetically modified organisms producing drugs for human consumption and use. Like uh, medicinal drugs or Medicinal therapeutic drugs, drugs right. yes. Okay, okay. Uh, and how, why, do, why do we do that? And what does it mean? Excellent. Mm. And we are joined in the studio today by a new member of the Lost in Science team, or a, a special guest member, new arrival here. Manisha, welcome to Lost in Science. Thank you. Uh, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, my name is Manisha. I am a PhD student at the University of Melbourne. I'm studying the impacts of urbanization on wildlife, specifically looking at the impacts of roads on bats. And you are going to tell us about bats, I believe. Yes, I am. I'm going to talk about white nose syndrome, which is actually a um, wildlife disease that is taking over the caves of North America and how that impacts the bats and some cool new breakthroughs that they've come up with lately. Excellent. We like a cool new breakthrough, especially when it is saving the bats. Yes, it is. All right. Well, more on that in a few minutes. Uh, On with the show. Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and today I am asking, is centrifugal force real? Now, see, one of the things that people like about science, I think one of the things that I think science is good for is it makes you feel smart. It makes you feel that you know something that other people don't. And centrifugal force is, I think, a good example of that. A lot of people, when they study, say, physics at at, um, high school, they learn that centrifugal force is not real, and they feel pretty clever that they know something is not what it appears to be. And then and then they go into the biology lab and get to use the centrifuge, and it really confuses them. Well, that's right. So this is why <laughs> I'm going to try and go counter that. I'm going to try and convince you that the centrifugal force is a real thing. First of all, I should explain what it is. Um, so the centrifugal force is the force you feel when you are rotating, essentially, and it's the force that makes things fly outwards. Um, so a good example of it is um, is the gravitron the the ride at the show? I don't know if you're familiar oh, with that yes, one. Yes, you stand up against the wall. Yeah, it's a big round room. It rotates very very fast. You're against the wall, uh, and you get pressed up against the wall by the the centrifugal force pushing you out. Or so it seems. Um, what actually is happening is the expression normally given is that the centrifugal force is not a real force. The real force is something called centripetal force, which is the force that makes you go around in a circle. It keeps you pushing in towards the center and not pushing you out. So in the case of the gravitron, the centripetal force is the thing that is the walls pushing against you, and that's what makes you move around in a circle. If they weren't doing that, then you would just go flying off outside the gravitron, and it would probably hurt even more. Um, Another example would be if you swing a weight around on a string, Mm. um, 
I'm miming that at the moment. Like, um, like the hammer throw in the, the, hammer in the throw, Olympics. Something like that, yeah. yeah. So the, the string there is pulling, is pulling on the, the weight, obviously. The string is providing the centripetal force that keeps the, the weight moving in a circle. Uh, now, this is a good example, I guess, of, of I guess showing how centrifugal force actually operates because if you let go of the string or if the string breaks, the weight doesn't fly out away from your, your hand. It actually goes flying off in a tangent to the way it was moving. So it's... So centrifugal force is kind of, this is why they say it's not a real force. It's just a tendency of things to move in a straight line. Um, and the fact that you are forcing it to go around a circle makes it feel like there is something pulling it out. And this is what the opinion that, say, uh, someone like Isaac Newton had. Uh, he liked to use examples like this. Um, he had some other ones with a bucket uh, that he would try and choose to show that you could distinguish between a system that is rotating and has these kind of weird effects like centrifugal force and a non-rotating system. And so he was kind of big on the whole idea there was an absolute motion. There was you know, kind of thing is either rotating or it's not rotating and there's a ways you can tell. Um, however, you know, that is, that's idea of absolute motion and absolute sort of perfect universe is something that we got over a bit in the 20th century. Um, I don't know if you remember a, a gentleman called Albert Einstein. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him. Vaguely. Mm. Yeah. And his whole principles of relativity. And essentially, you know, you basically, you look at how things behave in the reference frame, as it's called, that you're in. So in the case when you're on the Gravitron, you know, this big rotating room, it actually does behave like there is a force pulling you out. Um, you know, in the context of that room, if you didn't know you're trading, you'd feel this force. It's the same thing. This is that causes you that, like, you know, like if you tip over, if you go sliding around a corner um, on your bicycle, there is an actual force that you feel that is pulling you over. You know, it, mm. it kind of, in that context, it makes sense to talk about this force. Um, also, if you think about it, uh, you are in, you're not in an absolute rest frame at the moment. You are on a rotating planet. Mm. Uh, so you are actually experiencing these forces now as we speak. So when we talk about like an idealized situation, we've got to remember that we are always on a planet where there is this rotation going on. Um, you don't notice the centrifugal force, of course, on Earth because there is gravity pulling you towards the center. Um, and gravity, so the centrifugal force from the Earth's rotation, even though we're rotating quite fast, it's about, I think, 1,600 kilometers per hour is how fast we're moving, if you actually work it out. Um, the centrifugal force or the centripetal force as that's being pulled on you is only about 0.3% of the gravitational force that you're experiencing. So it's still there, but it's pretty minor. In but the there's stronger things. forces acting on us. That's right. But this is, I guess this is where I want to come to my other point, um, why I mentioned um, Professor Albert Einstein. You probably hear me bang on a fair bit about him and his theory of general relativity this year because it is a 100th anniversary this year, uh, this December, I believe, of the publication of his paper on general relativity. So... Albert Einstein really, in that, in that work, he essentially pointed out that there wasn't a difference between these, uh, what we call an accelerating frame, like a rotating system, and anything under gravity. That, um, for instance, you have an, acceler an elevator accelerating upwards. Um, you couldn't tell the difference between that and a force of gravity acting on you. For him, gravity was kind of the same effect as things moving and things accelerating. And it's all due to the curvature of space and time, I guess, is what the thing that the conclusion that he came to. But the point really is that in his theory, gravity isn't a real force. Gravity is just the way things naturally move according to the curve of space and time. And so, yeah, it's in, in the case of being standing on the Earth, if the ground wasn't there, you would just kind of keep moving in your natural direction, which would be downwards in this case. Um, it's the ground that is pushing you up. The gravity isn't a real force. The real force is the ground that's pushing you up. So it's like your, um, your centripetal and your centrifugal force. 
So my contention is that if you want to believe that um, gravity is real, then centrifugal force is just as real as gravity. Uh, and I think we can all agree that gravity is, is pretty real, generally. It's heavy stuff. It is heavy stuff. Um, I do want to hear, though, if anyone wants to um, dis- disagree with me, they can contact us on Facebook or on Twitter or drop us an email at lostinsight at gmail.com if they want to dispute my conclusions. I'm happy to take up the argument with whoever may want to um, call in. Um, we also, there are other fictitious forces, though. Um, in a rotating system, you'll see something called the Coriolis effect. Uh, I won't explain what that is because it really needs diagrams to explain that, but it's the reason that cyclones will rotate clockwise in the Southern Hemisphere and anti-clockwise in the Northern Hemisphere. There is a there is a video you can watch at the moment. Um, YouTube science video channels Veritasium and Smarter Every Day have done a synchronized experiment where one is, work, is doing their video in the Northern Hemisphere, one in the Southern Hemisphere, to test out the Coriolis effect and, and demonstrate how it gives you different results in the in the northern and southern hemispheres, I recommend you watch that and you get a view of another one of these kind of imaginary forces that basically is a real force because it does real things in the world. You can see that at uh, www.smartereveryday.com slash toiletswirl. That's mm-hmm. toiletswirl, but I'll put the link up on Facebook and on our uh, webpage. Um, yeah, so that's it. As Stu said, gravity is very heavy stuff, but don't, um, don't get all spun out about it. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Now, genetic modification is a controversial topic, and we have spoken about it before on the show uh, various times. And, you know, there's there's protests commonly organised against biotech companies who produce food crops that have been modified by methods other than traditional breeding. Um, And this technology is relatively new compared to traditional crossbreeding, which we've been doing for centuries, uh, and selection of superior plant strains. Um, But it does offer a very precise method for bringing specific traits to an organism. Now, before any agricultural crops were produced commercially by gene technology, medical scientists were interested in the potential for producing pharmaceuticals in this way by modifying organisms to make the particular chemicals they wanted. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of pharmaceutical treatments are based on compounds that are originally isolated from nature. So they go out in nature and go, oh, here's a chemical that does some particular thing. Um, but they're often quite difficult to extract in useful quantities. So you need you know, to make litres of something, then going yeah. and extracting it out of a plant or out of a out of a, an animal is, um, you know, expensive and time-consuming. So the use of insulin in the treatment of type 1 diabetes, for example, was originally dependent on supplies of insulin from animal sources. They used to actually go get the animals, extract the insulin out, put it in, you know, easy-to-use packages, and then give it to the diabetics. So would animals have a similar kind of... But yeah, basically they break down sugars in the blood in much the same way we do. So okay. we're talking about mammals here. We're not talking about you know anything smaller. But I think the original experiments were done with pig yeah. uh, derived insulin. But you know cows and other things you can use the use the insulin. So that meant that you know supplies were effectively limited. You only have so much insulin per animal, uh, and that made it quite expensive. 
So the use of a genetically altered E. coli bacteria uh, meant that supplies of insulin are now readily available. Um, basically, all you need is the appropriate strain of genetically modified E. coli bacteria and a big tank to grow it in and some sort of nutrient solution that it feeds on, and it will produce as much insulin as we need. So it's okay. cheap, free. Well, not free, but it's cheap enough that it's it's a commonly used treatment now. E. coli, that's the that's the poo bacterium, isn't it? E. coli is pretty much the everywhere bacteria. Right, there's, okay. there's strains that will make you sick, and there's strains that will do very little to you. But it is basically everywhere, okay. um, and it'll eat just about anything. Um, so you know, they basically just grabbed this freely occurring bacteria, tweaked its uh, genetic makeup. And uh, now it will make insulin. Not that it needs insulin for itself, so this is obviously a completely synthetic process that they've introduced. Um, And in other cases, no natural effective treatment can be found. And researchers, for example, have tweaked existing organisms to produce the exact thing they wanted. So, for example, in the case of the hepatitis B vaccine, which is now available, uh, they basically uh, got a strain of baker's yeast to produce an inert version of the virus that causes hepatitis B. Okay. So, um, you know, so there's genetic modification at work there. They actually modified the yeast to produce a modified version of a virus, which now makes people immune to that virus in the outside world. Um, So the technology using microorganisms to produce cheap or altered versions of commonly used pharmaceuticals is pretty well established, and it's relatively relatively problem-free. When you're finished with your vat of E. coli or baker's yeast, you turn up the heat, kills all the bacteria, and you can just dump it. It's just organic material then. It doesn't actually do anything in the environment once you release it, if you dispose of it properly, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But... Recently, in the journal Nature Chemical Biology, researchers have made a breakthrough using yeast to synthesize a chemical called S-reticuline, and this has got a lot of attention from various experts around the world. Uh, The reason for all this attention is that this chemical is a precursor to a range of existing drugs that have previously only been available from plants, uh, and specifically the opium poppy. So... Uh, The production of illegal drugs such as heroin and medically prescribed drugs like morphine and codeine have relied on plantations of plants, opium poppies, in illicit plantations in the case of heroin or in secure facilities. So in the case of morphine and codeine, they grow them, governments grow them and they guard them very carefully and the process is all very carefully regulated. Um, But using this yeast in combination with other existing modified techniques... Production of these drugs could now take place in a simple factory, not much different from a beer brewery. Um, and the obvious extension of this is that if live cultures of the yeast were somehow to become available, it would theoretically be quite simple to set up a homebrew type setup uh, to do exactly the same thing. Right, okay. So the worry is basically that people will be making homebrewed heroin using this uh, strain of yeast that they've discovered. See, or that you, they've created. You said initially that it can be hard to obtain the plants in the, the right quantities. And especially, I know that they often, with the new drugs, they look for like rainforest plants, these kind of things. Mm-hmm. But poppies aren't hard to grow. I mean, is this is there actually a problem with 
I guess, you know, in, in, in the case of this particular drug that they're talking about, the problem is in the security of the drug because obviously okay. there's, an, there's an illicit black market for opium-derived drugs has been a problem for several hundred years in Western cultures uh, and all over the world. And, you know, I guess that's the problem is that it is actually a very useful painkiller in medical situations, but the fact that people will... will take it and get addicted to it for reasons other than being, you know, in pain uh, is the big problem. So the idea of having to have these outdoor um, fields of poppies which have to be guarded and all that sort of thing, which is actually a big cost, you know, being able to grow this cheaply in a lab uh, under very controlled conditions is probably, um, you know, I mean, the other problem with growing things outdoors as part of a crop is that you're subject to crop failures and, mm. you know, plant diseases and all those sorts of things. So you do have a much higher uh, level of control over what you're producing. Yeah, okay. Um, so obviously this would ensure that these kind of drugs are readily, readily available to hospitals and medical professionals more cheaper than ever before, but obviously also the potential for black market product is enormous. Now, there are ways they could regulate this. Obviously they're not, you know, going to release this strain of yeast to anyone without checking their credentials and that sort of thing. But the idea that only a single cell could be grown up into a, you know, productive culture is, I guess, the main problem here. Yeah. Um, the concern is directed mainly at the potential of small of the small scale of the operations compared with, you know, opium growing. Opium growing, you can use planes to spot opium fields. They're pretty easy to see from the air and that sort of thing. And they're easy to destroy as well if uh, if that's the objective. Um, but existing laws for possession and trafficking of narcotics will still apply to lab-produced heroin. It's not like it's a different drug. They don't have to change the laws to make this illegal. It's just illegal to have this stuff. So that's not actually going to be an issue, but the control of production is going to be an issue. Is it going to be easy for them to, um, say, patent the organisms that make the the um, the drug and so thereby something that's been around for, for a long time, like morphine, will now be able to be put under a patent? And they, well, they can certainly the patent ownership. the process for producing the yeast, but yeah. as it is a live organism, once you've done that, then we're in that grey area which is still not adequately resolved legally where can you actually own a patent for a gene or did you just discover this gene? And they have mm. effectively just discovered these enzymes and discovered these genes and shifted them around so that they're doing what they want them to do. Um, look, I think I think probably what this does suggest for lawmakers, if they're worried about it, I mean, the technology is the technology, but whether it causes legal problems is another issue entirely. Um, but if drugs like heroin become cheaper or more easily obtainable, it's probably a good argument for focusing on harm reduction type legal approaches Mm -hmm. to the issue rather than just, you know, focusing on the prohibition. Because if anyone could have a little homebrew uh, in their their garage or in their garden shed, it's going to make it really difficult to keep it prohibited. And maybe they should just look at, you know, trying to get people not to hurt themselves by using it. All right. So um, I've got a story that's a bit similar to Stu's story, except it's relating to bats and and how you can use different biological organisms to help with disease in the wildlife world. Um, basically, I'm talking about white nose syndrome, which maybe not a lot of you have heard about. It's a fungus that has been impacting about 
six million bats in North America. And it's this fungus that goes ahead and colonizes bat skin. So the skin around their nose and along their wings and on their ears. And um, it just rapidly spreads right through the caves and it impacts about 70 to 90 percent of bats in a single cave. And then on the rare occasion, it can actually kill all of the bats in the cave. It's a fungus that has been, um, it's been noticed in, it was first noticed in 2006. And as of late, a lot of different uh, disease, wildlife disease research groups have been trying to eradicate it or at least treat it. And this story actually relates to one of the success stories that have come out earlier this year. Just, um, do they know where the fungus originated from? from? No. So uh, white nose syndrome, there's been some accounts of it in Europe. There haven't been any accounts of it in Australia so far. But um, most of the uh, most of the stories are in the United States and in Canada. Okay. So they don't they don't know if it, it if there are bats that are immune to it or something somewhere else, and that's where it came from, or they just have no idea where it popped up. I I actually haven't come across anything like that. Okay. Um, it could be possible that the bats in Europe or in Australia even have a um, immunity to it, and so it might have been in the caves here, and then they've just kind of developed it. But I'm not quite sure. More research required. Yeah, more mm. research required. <laughs> um, but in any case, um, so at Georgia State University, uh, there was a team looking at how to slow down the fruit ripening process. And I know this seems kind of tangential, and it doesn't seem to relate, but it does eventually. Um, so they were looking at how to slow down peaches, bananas, apples, um, how to slow down the ripening process so that they could make it to the supermarket and not need to be tossed out. So basically really conserving that fruit. And as they're going through this, they discovered that they can expose the fruit to a bacterium from volatile uh, organic compounds, and this is delaying the ripening process. And they're really, it's really de- delaying all of their maturity. But Along with delaying the ripening, they also noticed that it's not getting moldy. And at the same time as all of this was going on, one of the graduate students on the project, Chris Cornelson, he was being bombarded, I guess, on his Facebook newsfeed or even within his friend circle. And the white nose syndrome was really taking off. And Mm -hmm. it was really in the news at that time, or at least in the wildlife world. And he just had this really bright idea, and it was just a complete shot in the dark. But if this bacterium that they're using is preventing the fruit from developing a mold, then maybe it could prohibit the growth and development of this fungus, the uh, the white nose syndrome fungus. So he took a complete shot in the dark, and he um, exposed a Petri dish of white nose fin- syndrome fungus to this bacterium and found that it rapidly prevented the fungus from growing and from, wow. from really developing. So it just it just stopped it right in its tracks. Okay. So um, as the team found this out, they continued it and they tried to do or recreate this with bats. And they brought in, a f- I believe they brought in 150 bats to an experimental setting and they put them in a fake cave with the bacterium exposed and they found that it really just took the fungus right out, um, right out of the cave, and the the bats were no longer infected with these 
with the fungus. So do you know if they, they sprayed the bacteria around the cave? Or was it on the bats or what did they do? I, from what I understand, they just had Petri dishes with um, the bacterium there and then they put a, just put it there in the same cave. Wow. So they didn't really need to spray it. It was just... I guess, airborne. Mm -hmm. And so it was, uh, so the bats, or well, the bats didn't really do anything. The bacterium just started to fight this fungus. Wow. Does the bacteria affect all fungus the same way? So that's what I was just about to get to. So this all sounds well and good. And it was great because earlier in May, I believe they released 75 bats back into the wild. um, And they're really hoping that these bats won't regain the white nose syndrome and this would be a great success story but the issue comes in how to really use this bacterium because Mm. essentially it's an antifungal so it would be Mm. if we went into the cave systems and just said okay let's just expose the entire cave to this bacterium that would be an issue it'd be it would be like spraying the cave with antifungal or like a pesticide of some sort. Yeah. And you never know because the the bacterium has no specificity. You can't say, okay, only attack this bad fungus and leave all the good fungus there yeah. or, or have the fungus not evolve so it can become immune to this bacteria mm-hmm. or in whatever case because in nature you just, you, you're never really quite sure how things are going to proceed. Um, so this is the big uh, wow. issue that the research group is now is now probably trying to tra- trying to tackle. I imagine in a cave ecosystem there'd be all kinds of funguses, fungi in living in there. Yeah, I would. Well, I mean, yeah, because yeah. especially the bats would be bringing in f- food, and obviously their feces would exactly, be on the yeah, floor, and, and something's got to break all that down. So, and they tend to be pretty damp. So, mm. so these systems are there's probably lots and lots going on there. I'm no expert of cave systems, but I would assume that just kind of having a blanket solution would not be appropriate in this situation. Mm-hmm. If these bats then do not, like the bats that were released, if they don't pick up the disease again, so say they go out for the for the winter and they're in these caves and they're not picking it up from their neighbors and whatnot, then it could be a great story because then it's, it's just about bringing more bats in, yep. treating them and then releasing them. And that could be a great way to eradicate it. Mm. But it would probably be a better way than just exposing full the entire caves. cave, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because yeah. you would never really know how other organisms would respond, or even the white nose syndrome. In, in an experimental setting, in this fake cave, sure, we've controlled for everything except yeah. the, um, the fungus and the bats, but you never quite know what's going to happen in, in real life. Okay, that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. I'd like to thank Manisha for uh, coming in and telling us all about the, the white nose syndrome uh, and, yeah, and how it is. Well, it, they've got a way to tackle it, I think. Um, potentially. Potentially, yeah. Hopefully. Yes. Using bacteria to do good, as are the bacteria that, that Stu told us about. Bacteria and yeast all making medicines yep. for us. Yep. And, you know, how would you extract the, those, those uh, chemicals from the, the bacteria? Probably, probably with some kind of centrifuge. Probably with I a imagine. centrifuge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It all, it all comes around, so to speak. <laughs> uh, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Uh, we'd love you to get in touch and tell us what you think. Um, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we are Lost in Science on 3CR, I believe. Or we are on Twitter where our handle is at Lost in Science 1 because someone else presumably grabbed 
the the vanilla lost in science. Mm. Um, or you can listen to us, of course, on the radio when we'll be here same time next week to get lost in science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.